Ephesians 3:14 through 21. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. The word of the Lord. It is so good to have you all with us. Thank you for being here today at River Oaks. Before we begin the message, I'd like to take just a few minutes and ask you to join me in prayer. We look, what, look at what's going on around uh, us in our world. We, we just are confronted with a lot of needs for prayer. We think of what's happening in Houston now with the after effects of the hurricane, also in Florida. Uh, the results of the terrible earthquake in Mexico, and now the devastation in Puerto Rico. Um, And then there's the world situation, with all that's happening in the Middle East and with North Korea. Reminds me of the verse in the second psalm that begins, Why do the nations rage? And indeed it seems uh, the nations are raging. And in the midst of all that, the Bible tells us that to Jesus Christ has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And he calls us to pray, and to pray to our Father that his kingdom would come and his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. So I'd like to ask you to join me now as we do that and pray for God to bring his power into these situations. Would you join me? Father, we come, as you've told us to, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, We do pray for your kingdom to come and your will to be done. We pray for your power, your provision, and your blessing among all who are serving in Houston that you would place your hand on the relief efforts to provide all that's needed there in Florida, in Mexico. And Lord, in the midst of the terrible devastation in Puerto Rico, would you bring the provision needed and the care. And Lord, as we look at our world situation, we pray that you would give the leaders of our nation your divine wisdom. You have said in your word that the heart of a king is in the hand of the Lord, and you turn it where you will. Would you turn the heart of our president and our leaders such that their decisions will conform with your word, your will, and your ways of righteousness? And in the midst of all this, Lord, We pray that the gospel of Jesus Christ would be known in power, that your Holy Spirit would be bringing people to faith in you, in Christ, is the way and the truth and the life. And we pray in his great name. Amen. Thank you again for being here today. And if you were here at the beginning of the service, David Holcomb mentioned that we are beginning a study of the biblical themes in the Apostles' Creed. 
Now, the Apostles' Creed was not written by Jesus' original 12 uh, disciples, who we often refer to as the Apostles, but it was formed very early in the history of the church. We don't know exactly when, in its written form, uh, we find it as early as 700 A.D., but it probably predates that quite a bit. So when you recite the Apostles' Creed, you're reciting something that's been around a long time. It's also been in use across the whole spectrum of Christian churches, uh, Catholic, Orthodox, and Protestant. So when we affirm what we believe in the Apostles' Creed, we're joining with believers in Jesus Christ throughout the ages, around the world, and across all types of denominational and church traditions. I expect many here today could recite the Apostles' Creed. Maybe you heard it frequently when you were growing up. And that's great if you can. In fact, in our study of the Creed, if you're, if you're using our study guide in your small groups or for personal study, uh, we strongly encourage you to memorize the Creed during this study. But far more important than being able to recite it is understanding what it means. When you say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. And this morning, we're going to begin with that statement, the first statement in the creed, the one you see on the screen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. What you believe about God is tremendously important and will have huge bearing on your life. When we say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, we're professing belief in one God. The Bible teaches that there is only one God. The Lord your God, Scripture says, is one. And what you believe about him is critically important. Over the summer, my wife Beth and I were on a trip um, just outside of San Francisco, and we were doing a little half-day tour, and the tour guide was a, a wonderful person, and we were coming back, and my wife and I had happened to be seated next to her, and we're engaged in conversation, and I was hoping the Lord might give us an opportunity to share the gospel with her. And so I said to her, is there anything we can pray about you, uh, pray for you about? My wife and I, we believe in prayer, we pray together, and is there anything we can pray for you about? And she seemed, you know, to really appreciate that a lot. And as the conversation unfolded, I said, do you believe in God? She said, well, I believe in all gods. Now, when we say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, that's not what we're saying. We're saying we believe there is only one God. And he has revealed himself to us in Scripture, and one of the ways he has revealed himself is as the Father. And as the Father, he is a God of relationship. Just a moment ago, Tate read from Ephesians chapter 3, the beginning of a prayer by the Apostle Paul for the Christians at Ephesus. And he begins his prayer by saying, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. God's existence as Father, as the Father, is the starting place for the concept of family. God created us for relationship with himself. And God is a God of relationship. 
In the Old Testament, we would find that God is referred to as Father occasionally, not frequently. And, and more often as the Father of the nation of Israel than in a real personal way. But in the New Testament, when we get to the Gospel of Matthew, as the New Testament begins, there is a dramatic change. And Jesus is speaking frequently, often, about the Father. For example, in his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, if we looked at Matthew chapter 6, we would see there are oh, over a dozen times, I think, uh, in this sermon that Jesus mentions God as your Father. He says, your Father who's in secret will reward you. When you pray, don't make a big show of it. Go to your closet, pray to your Father who's in secret. Your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Don't be like the Gentiles, heaping up empty phrases. Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Therefore say, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Jesus is introducing God as the Father. If you want to know what the Father is like, all you have to do is look at Jesus. For Jesus said, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus came to make the Father known, to reveal him to us. Now, when I say God is a God of relationship, that is not simply because he calls us into relationship with himself. God has always been a God of relationship before creation. Because God is triune. God is the Trinity. Now when we say God is triune or God is the Trinity, we, were mean, we mean that there is only one God, yet he exists eternally as three distinct persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each of whom is fully God. It almost seems like a logical impossibility when we try to process this humanly, but it's taught throughout the scripture. And that's why in the verse you see on the screen, when Jesus told us to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, he told us to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The doctrine of the Trinity throughout the history of the church has been held, has been believed, and it's a difficult doctrine to explain, and there's, it's difficult to find any kind of earthly analogy for it. Uh, the great theologian J.I. Packer says, perhaps we should just think of God as the divine team. The image you see on the screen is one image for the Trinity that's been used throughout uh, much of church history, it's a way of depicting the fact that there's one God, and you see God in the center, and around the four corners of the shield, you see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father is God, as you see the lines going from the Father to the God in the middle. The Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. And yet, as you look at the lines around the shield, we see the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is not the Father. One God, existing eternally, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three distinct persons, each of whom is fully God. That's why Jesus at his baptism could be in the water, praying to the Father, the Father speaking from heaven, while the Holy Spirit is descending like a dove. One God existing eternally is three distinct persons, each of whom is fully God. I know it's a challenging 
biblical teaching to grasp. That's one reason we made available at the Resource Center these little booklets on understanding the Trinity. And if you want to study it further, you can feel free to pick one of those up. As the Trinity, God is and has always been a God of relationship. The 12th century, there was a Scotsman named Richard of St. Victor who studied and wrote about the Trinity. And he said, God must be triune because God is love. And if he were not triune, if he were not three persons, from all of eternity, before creation, he would have had no one to love. And God is love. God the Trinity has always existed in a relationship of perfect love and perfect fellowship. And out of this perfect love, out of this perfect fellowship, out of this perfect communion, our triune God chose to create and to share his great love. And to share that relationship with him. And he is revealing himself through Christ as the Father of all who know him. So through Jesus that we can actually say, yes, God is my Father. He is our Father who's in heaven. Now, it's common for people to say, well, God's everybody's Father, right? Because he created everybody. Well, it's true that he created everybody. It's not accurate to say that he is the Father of all. Because he is the father of those, and only those, I think the Bible teaches, who are adopted through Jesus Christ. In the Gospel of John chapter 8, Jesus is engaged in a conversation with some religious leaders, hypocritical religious leaders, and they said, we have God as our father. Jesus said, no, if God were your father, you would receive the words that I'm teaching to you. He went on to say to them, and only Jesus can say something like this, he said, you're of your father the devil. Well, it's quite true they didn't have God there as their father. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1 about how we have God as our father. He writes, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Jesus reveals the Father... And through Jesus' death on the cross, as he suffered there, as he shed his blood, as the wrath of God was poured out upon Christ, as if he were guilty of all, Jesus took our place. He became the final sacrifice. He became the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. He took the judgment for our sins so that through Christ we could stand before our Holy Father forgiven declared righteous because of what Jesus did. Through Christ, then, we can say, God is my Father. He is our Father who is in heaven. As Father, he's shown himself to be a God of relationship. And when you 
profess the Apostles' Creed, and you say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, you're saying He's my Father through Jesus Christ. Secondly, we're proclaiming Him as the Creator in this first line of the Creed, and as the Creator of heaven and earth, the Bible tells us that everything owes its existence to Him. The verse you see on the screen from Genesis 1-1 is the very first verse in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It goes on to say the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters and God said, let there be light and there was light. So he created day, he created night, he created the sun and stars to rule. He created the animals, the livestock, the creatures of the sea. And we get to Genesis 1.26. We see these words. We see God saying, let us make man in our image after our likeness. This is God, the one God, the creator, speaking in first person, plural. Because he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's not God and the angels. We're not being made, we weren't created in the image of angels, but of God himself. Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So God the creator of all things, creates humanity. And the Bible teaches us that the creation itself points to God's existence. In fact, his glory is seen in creation. That's what the Psalms tell us. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. When you see the awesomeness of the ocean or the beauty of the mountains or the beauty of a of a starry night, the awesomeness points to one more awesome, greater. Just like seeing a beautiful work of art and knowing that behind it there must be a great artist. So creation points to the existence of a great creator. The Apostle Paul wrote about this in the New Testament, in the book of Romans, when he wrote about God, his invisible nature his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. What Paul is saying is that everybody, everywhere, has a certain witness of the existence of God in the things that have been made. That there is a God, that he has a divine nature, that he is a creator, and therefore all people, everywhere have a responsibility to acknowledge him and to be thankful. But Paul goes on to teach that we human beings did not do that. And as a result, he said, the creation has been subjected to futility. Creation suffers the effects of mankind's sin in the Garden of Eden. In fact, after Adam sinned and rebelled against God's decree, his command, God said, cursed is the ground for your sake. If we would read further in the book of Romans, we'd read the Apostle Paul writing these words, the creation was subjected to futility. 
And he went on to say, one day the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption, set free into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Until then, the whole creation is groaning as in the pains of childbirth. Some people say, well, if God is real and God is good, why do we have the earthquake in Mexico? Why do we have these devastating natural disasters? Why do we have wars? Why are things in the world so bad? Man sinned. Man turned from God. We failed to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We failed to love our neighbor as ourself. And the creation itself, the Bible says, is now groaning as in the pains of childbirth until that day when Jesus Christ will return and those who are his will receive glorified bodies what the Apostle Paul calls the redemption of our bodies. And at that time, there will be a new heaven, new heavens and a new earth, wherein the Bible says righteousness dwells. I wonder what that will be like. When I consider how beautiful so much of this earth still is, and I think about the fact that Jesus told his followers over 2,000 years ago, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I wonder what it'll be like. It must be something really, really, really extraordinary. When we declare that God is the creator of all, we acknowledge that everything we see is his. In the words of the Bible, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Now, that certainly implies a certain responsibility on me and you who know him, if we're followers of Jesus, to honor his creation as such, to care for it as we have opportunity, not to ab deliberately abuse it, but to honor it. It's God's. He's not only the creator of all that we see, he's the very giver and sustainer of life. There's a certain view of God that has been held by many throughout the years, it's called deism. Deism is the belief that, that God created everything, but that he's not involved in it today. He created it and just left it, turned away from it. As if God were a, a, a great watchmaker and he created a giant watch and he, he wound it up and just walked away. And some people say, well, I see there's an order, so there had to be someone who gave it order. There had to be a creator. But I don't think he's involved because things on the earth are so bad. And if there was a good God, he wouldn't let these things happen. And so deism is the belief that God created it and then just stepped away and he's not involved at all. It's a totally unbiblical idea because the Bible teaches that God is intimately involved in his creation, in his human beings, in those made in his image, and that he took the initiative when we had sinned to redeem us from our sin by sending God the Son on a mission to this earth to seek and to save the lost, to give his life, to bring us into relationship with God. God brings us into a relationship with himself in all of eternity that I believe is far, far better 
than what Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden before they sinned. Because we have an appreciation and will have in all of eternity of the greatness of the grace of God who has done this for us. The Bible says all of eternity he will be unfolding before us the riches of his kindness toward us. It's a remarkable thing. But he didn't just create it and disappear. He's the giver and sustainer of life. The Apostle Paul writes these words, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Notice the change in tenses. The God who made the world, past tense, he is also the God who gives to mankind life and breath and everything. Have you ever thought about the fact that every breath you take is a gift to you from God? He's given you another moment on earth, another day on earth, to know him better, to love him more, to walk with him. He created life. He gives life. He's intimately involved in life. He's involved in your life before you're born. The prophet Jeremiah, writing of what God said to him, wrote these words from God to him. God said to the prophet, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. Remarkable statement. King David, who wrote the 139th Psalm, wrote to God, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. God is intimately involved with his creation. He's the giver of life, and he's the giver of life in the womb. Knowing God is creator, believing in him as the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, implies a responsibility to his creation. It implies great care for the gift of the unborn in the womb, as well as the born who are in need. All are given their life by God. If God's our creator, I think it also implies he has the right to make the rules. And it implies a responsibility to our creator to acknowledge him, to thank him, to seek to know him, to follow him and by his grace to obey him. I think it also implies that only he knows that which will really satisfy the deepest longings of the human soul. I think it was C.S. Lewis who wrote, if I find myself, in, inside myself, desires that nothing on this earth can really fulfill, it must mean that I've been created for another world, for something more. Only God can satisfy, ultimately, the deepest longings of the human soul. Everything in this life, though there are many things that satisfy temp uh, temporarily, none will satisfy ultimately. Only God can do that because he's our creator. And finally, as the Almighty One, 
He's powerful and continues to rule over his creation. And I would stress the word continues because God is not the giant watchmaker who stepped away from the watch after he wound it up, leaving it to fend for itself. God's intimately involved with his people. Psalm 121 is one of the many psalms that speaks of God's power in creation, but also speaks of his caring, loving, intimate involvement with his own people. And I'd like to draw to a close with this. The psalmist writes, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. If we were going to write a little outline of this psalm, I think we could write it this way. We could say, number one, the Lord is my creator. He's the one who made heaven and earth. Number two, the Lord is my keeper. He watches over me. He's involved with my life. And because of those two things, I should lift up my eyes to him and trust him. That God who created all things is intimately involved with his people. Now as we draw to a close this morning, I'd raise two questions by way of personal application. The first one is this. Ask yourself this question. Do I really know God as my Father? Can I say the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, sincerely knowing that He is my Father because I have placed faith in Jesus Christ and in the words of the Apostle Peter, Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then secondly, do I have a clear enough understanding of who God is to explain that to someone else? One outline for explaining not only who God is, but what Christians really believe is the Apostles' Creed. And it's one that a lot of people are familiar with. You'll see it on the screen. You see the words there. Have you ever thought about using the Apostles' Creed to explain the gospel to someone? For those who have young children in the home, have you ever thought using the Apostles' Creed around the dinner table as a sort of blessing? Or maybe even a bedtime prayer what a wonderful thing to teach your kids to pray before they go to bed at night. A whole overview of the gospel and our reason for trust in God. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Next week we'll look at this phrase. We'll consider why it was necessary that Jesus be born of a virgin. We'll talk about his suffering, and in the coming days, we'll talk about his uh, return as judge in life eternal. But this morning, before we close, I would invite you, if you would like to do this, 
certainly don't have to, but if you'd like to, I'd like to invite you to stand now and join me in reciting the Apostles' Creed together. And by the way, don't feel bad if you go back to the wording in the creed that's a little different from what's on the screen. I do the same thing. I tend to say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And then we'll get to some of those hard questions later in this series when we talk of, we ask, did he descend to hell or did he descend to the dead? Which one is it? And we'll talk about why. But let's say it together now. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, life everlasting. Amen. Please be seated as we pray. Father, we ask that your spirit would take the things we've considered today and use them in us so that we would long to know you better and to love you more. Lord, for anyone here who does not yet truly know you, I pray that you would draw them by your spirit to the realization that God the Son is the way to the Father, that Jesus Christ is the way and the truth and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. May you be glorified in our lives, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> 